Open the eyes of my heart. i 
Lord Jesus, we come before you now and we thank you for this time of worship. We also thank you for your spirit and how you minister to our needs. And we just thank you, Lord, for how you work in and through our lives. We pray now, especially for this time of offering, we just uh, first of all acknowledge that everything we have comes from you. And we are so blessed and we thank you for that. And we also acknowledge that first and foremost, you want our hearts. You want our lives. And so, Lord, may we be completely committed and devoted to you and give our lives as an offering. And now, Lord, we ask that you do bless the gifts that are given to be used for your ministry, to touch people, to reach people with your love. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Um, it's fantastic to be able to do this. Um, today, I wanted to start, it, start off with a particular story and then kind of progress into the theme or the focus of today's uh, sermon and message. In 1945, a year after communists seized power in Romania, the government invited all the religious leaders to attend. So priests, pastors, bishops, to, uh, to attend a congress at the parliament building, which was an event that over 4,000 members attended, right? So the first order of business that day was to choose Joseph Stalin as honorary president of the congress. After his selection, the event moved on to a series of speeches, uh, excuse me, series of speeches delivered by the priests, pastors, and bishops, where they would go on to procl- proclaim that Communism and Christianity were compatible. 
that they could some way coexist. Now, you know, I would shake my head as well, but that's what they were saying. Perhaps due to fear, persecution, just to appease or to show somewhat loyalty to their new regime, that they would kind of compromise the faith, compromise the truth of the gospel for the sake of peace, or so they thought. But regardless of that, within the crowds, a thousand of people present, one particular person wasn't having any of it. And her name was Sabina. Sabina Warmbrand. I'm not sure if you're familiar with her husband, Richard Warmbrand. But she would lean over to Richard and ask him, or tell him, Richard, stand up and wash away this shame from the face of Christ. Knowing full well what would happen if he decided to speak up and speak the truth, what would happen to him? Prison, torture, persecution. But that was something that he considered, you know, so that the truth would be spoken, that it would be heard. And he goes back to tell his wife, if I speak, you will lose your husband. And she responds, I do not wish to have a coward for a husband. Pretty strong woman, right? (laughs) That's a bold lady. Richard, who was a pastor, decided to take the stage and began to preach, which in this Congress, this was actually being broadcasted throughout the world through the radio. So everyone could hear what was being said at that night. And he would go on to preach and preach the truth, which once he started, a silence occupy the space for everyone was listening and everyone knew that it was truth. At one point he states, delegates, it's our duty not to praise earthly powers that come and go, but to glorify God the Creator and Christ the Savior who died for us on the cross. A message that quite distinctly shows that communism and Christianity are not compatible. So you can imagine the rush of the communists, the people in charge, cut his mic, cut his mic. But he wasn't having any of it. He kept going, he kept preaching. And by the time he was pulled off the stage, the entire crowd was chanting, the pastor, the pastor, the pastor. They heard the real message. And from that day on, there was a mark on his back. You know, he was marked. And shortly after, he would be kidnapped and thrown in prison, which... He would spend two different terms. The first time, it was about for about eight and a half years. The second time was about five years. But in that experience, he would later write that I was led to a prison 30 feet beneath the earth where I was kept alone in solitary confinement. For years, I was kept alone in a cell. Never did I see, never, never did I see the sun, the moon, the stars, the plants, Never did I see a man except the interrogators who beat and tortured me. Never did I have a book, never a bit of paper. When after many years I had to write again, I couldn't even remember how to write the capital D. Richard and many other Christians at this time were heavily persecuted for their faith, for their belief. And when he would write an account of his experience, many people would question, like, because you know, his response to his torturers was love. He actually loved the people that were torturing him. Not to say he loved the, tort- the torturing they experienced, but he was seeing something 
that our earthly worldly eyes was not seeing, seeing past that, seeing who they could become through Christ once they're changed. Right? He saw who they, be, who they could become through Christ. Many asked him, how can you love someone who's torturing you? And he replies, by looking at men, not as they are, but as they will be. I could also see in our persecutors a Saul of Tarsus, a future Apostle Paul. Many officers of the secret police to whom we witnessed became Christians and were happy to later suffer in prison for having found our Christ. Although we were whipped, as Paul was, in our jailers, we saw the potential of the jailer in Philippi, who became a convert. We dreamed that soon they would ask, what must I do to be saved? It was in prison that we found the hope of salvation for the communists. It was there that we developed a sense of responsibility toward them. In communist prisons, the idea of Christian missions to the communists was born, and we asked ourselves, what can we do to win these men to Christ? Friends, the focus that I want, or the word of the concept that I really want to focus on, and I would ask you to take a moment to consider, is what does reconciliation mean to you? How does that come about? How is that expressed? Has that been something that you've experienced between a broken relationship, whether it be friends, family members? More importantly, have you experienced that reconciliation with God, right? Because in this rather short, brief story that I just shared, you see an individual that is able to perceive others, not as who they are, but who they can be. And in doing so, he can become an excellent minister of reconciliation to them, so that they would one day be inclined, be motivated, be convicted in their heart by the Holy Spirit, to accept the same message of salvation, the same gift of grace. So again, what does reconciliation mean to you? In Colossians chapter 1, it speaks to a rather great length of it, but I just wanted to focus on two specific scriptures. Verse 19 and verse 20. In Colossians chapter 1. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. You know, the first step that we can make as unbelievers is to understand the need to surrender, to yield to God's gift of grace. For since the fall of humanity, there has been a great chasm that separated us from God, a great separation due to our sin, right? And with Christ, right, dying on the cross for us, paving the way, bridging the gap that existed, that separated us, closing in, He gives us the opportunity through Him and by Him to be reconciled to God. To reconcile to himself all things, all things, us, all creation, us, the world, that we are given that opportunity to accept that gift of grace. Reconciling us to God through the power and authority of his Son. 
to be reconciled, to be restored, to be redeemed through and by His Son. Like spiritual reconciliation. You know, how amazing is it that such a gift is available, right? That we can be made right, that we can be reconnected, reestablished with God the Father through His Son. And I love that. It's probably the most greatest, utmost important thing that we as Christians have experienced, as potential believers can and will experience. It's just that reconciliation with God. To be reconciled with Him. To not be separated anymore. And I would love to just say, the end, roll the credits. But as you know, for those who have experienced that, that is just the beginning. That is just the start, right? In that same way, how in that opening story, that he was such a minister of reconciliation to others. Others that were complete strangers, others that were complete persecutors, torturers to him. He still desired, still yearned for them to know and come to know Christ as their personal Savior. So in 2 Corinthians, it talks about this. So we have already established the reconciliation between us and God, right? Because what had existed before wasn't peace. Peace comes about through reconciliation. What's the antonym of peace? War, separation, disunity, discord, right? Animosity. And I think we can all relate to a certain extent in our own personal experiences someone that we may have wronged or someone that has wronged us, right? And then the need to reconcile, to restore those relationships, right? In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15, And he died for all that those who live no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So you see a complete different, like a paradigm shift, a perspective change in how the believer has an outlook for life now, a focus that is geared toward the gospel, geared toward the spreading of that news, geared toward the process of becoming a disciple and making disciples, right? Verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, and the new is here. A new creation, a new life, a new direction, a very specific purpose, a new calling, right? Because these words, you know, ministry of reconciliation, reconciliation, it's just a more poetic phrase as, as, a, as opposed to like Matthew chapter 28, you know, the Great Commission, right? I find it to be, it's the same thing, just more poetic, better, a more sellable phrase that we could take upon, take upon ourselves to be ministers of reconciliation to others. Verse 18, All this from God, who reconciled us himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sin against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. So taking advantage of the opportunity, we, 
we can spread, share the message, build relationships, be agents of healing, be people that can point others uh, that are experiencing hurt, that are lost, to the right direction of healing, to the right direction of reconciliation, a restoration of redemption through Christ. That is our calling. It takes various shapes and forms. But what prevents, I would ask, what prevents or hinders us from being those successful reconciliators? Right? Because I think, if we're to be honest, I think it's probably easier to talk about Jesus and the need of salvation to a stranger, right? I think so. Maybe because there's just, there's no... I mean, it's just a stranger. You come and go. Whether you want to build on that relationship, that's up to you, right? As opposed to perhaps a friend or a family member that we may have some type of grievance or resentment, right? You may want to withhold and kind of choke the spirit and not want to share that message. I don't know, through bitterness. But that's not what we have been called to be, to do. If we're not able to make peace, reconciliation will always be beyond our reach in relation to your relationship with God and how He can use you as well as the relationships with your friends and or family members, regardless of whose fault it is. Because the key thing here is there must be forgiveness. For those who have accepted Christ, the forgiveness was already there. It was just a matter of when, when, when were you willing to yield and to surrender to his gift, to accept it. So, when we keep these resentments or grievements, you know, we we allow the spirit to be choked, to be hindered. Right? We may not feel as motivated or inclined to talk about Jesus as in every possible opportunity. Right? And with here, you know, I wanted to share a personal story um, because this, this idea of when we hold on to things, when we choke the Spirit, it prevents us really from living a life that God has called us to live, right? To be as powerful, to be as influential, to be as someone that's making that much of an impact in other, other person's life through God working through you, right? Kind of choking the strength. And for me... You know, I appreciate this opportunity to be able to preach, and I thought it was a perfect time to you know share this because it connects because that condition that I was just stating very much was part of my life. You know, choking the spirit, not wanting to talk about God or Jesus to anybody. I was just so bitter, so angry for the longest time. And in fact, the last time that I preached was December two thousand eleven, right? Um, I was a preacher for a good couple of years, a teacher, um, very involved, you know, in my, in my old church. And I mean, I loved it. That was the church that I got saved. I was intimately close with the pastor's family. I mean, I viewed him as a father. That's the father that I never had, right? His son was also a preacher and I worked side by side with him every day. We had the same job. So I actually knew him better than I knew my wife at times, I think. 
we're just that close. We're always working shoulder to shoulder and just always talking about sermons, uh, ideas for outreach, et cetera, et cetera. So it was an amazing time. But fast forward to 2011, the church just, I don't know, it's so hard to explain. And I'll try my best to be as brief as possible, but the pulpit was now used as the opportunity to you know, preach hateful messages that specifically targeted members. The messages were geared to cause separation, discord. It was specific attacks on members that hurt many families that I was close to. You know, every opportunity to conspire to cause hurt was being done at that church. And, you know, for me, it's like, you know, it was hard because I, I, was, I was a relative, relatively young Christian and experienced all that. It caused, and seeing who was doing that, and even my, me myself was included in that, it caused such regret, bitterness, resent for allowing those things to happen. Because it choked the spirit, it, fellowship wasn't co- it wasn't common to say, you know that sweet fellowship was non-existent. In fact, both in private and in the pulpit, you would hear such things as, "This church isn't for everybody. If you don't like the message, there's a there's a back door, and make sure it doesn't hit you on your way out, on your way out." Right? A spirit that just wasn't sweet anymore, that was hurting families left and right. And that, those experiences, and there, there's many more, it just really shut me down. It, you know, it made me, you know, broken, essentially, to the point that I never wanted to preach again. I never wanted to hear anything about church or anything like that because it, it, it grieved my spirit. So, But as time has progressed, I've always wanted to come back to preaching. I, I knew that was my calling. I always knew that was my calling. That was always my motivation. And every time I tried to do other things or other paths, God shut the door really hard. And, and I say this because the way I feel, and I, I believe in a, in a second we'll, we'll have a better demonstration or illustration of it, that the pathway to reconciliation is forgiveness. That only when I was finally able to forgive those who hurt me, and more importantly, ask for forgiveness for those who I've hurt, that I could feel finally, truly reconciled in the, in the sense of that relationship with God, that I was equipped or that I was finally re-endorsed to go, go do what you have been called to do. Don't waste any more time. Do it. It's fixed. It's reconciled. And I feel in many of our relationships that we can have in life, we can be faced with such opportunities or events or circumstances that a single moment could be held for years as an excuse to why we choose not to heal, to not restore, to not redeem, to not fix those relationships. And I ask, how can we be such great ministers of reconciliation when we cannot 
reconcile our own situations, our own problems, right? Our own relationships that we may or may have not broken or harmed. We are called to be agents of healing, of restoration, restoring people, pointing people back to the cross, right? I believe the person that does such a great job showcasing that, right? Showcasing what reconciliation could look like or should look like, especially beyond just the mere, you know, reconciliation that needs to happen between us and God, but the reconciliation that needs to happen between us and the people that we come in contact to, that we are given the opportunity to talk to, to witness to. It's Joseph, right? If you think in Joseph, Genesis, the book of Genesis, chapter 45, verses 1 through 13, and I won't read them. But here, after all these trials, after all these things that Joseph allowed, like pretty much he, he let his brothers go through the ringer, it kind of, it finally culminates to a point of great reconciliation between him and his brothers and his family, right? Because, you know, with Jacob, we know his father was, excuse me, Joseph, his father was Jacob, Jacob had 12 sons, out of the 12 sons, he had a favorite son, and we all know what favoritism kind of leads to it doesn't it, it causes a lot more problems when favoritism is prevalent right but very similar to the story of Richard that I shared before he kind of experienced the same thing you know in this high position of being a favorite child his brothers ever growingly grow animosity hatred bitterness against his brother even though that's you know it wasn't you know, he wasn't causing it. It was just, you know, that's how his father treated his sons. And I'm sure he didn't make anything better when he shared this, the dreams that he had that would reflect on things to come in which his brothers would bow to him, right? So, you know, when he, he would see, you know, when they would see his younger brother Joseph, it's like, hey, look, there's the dreamer. There's the dreamer. To the point of plotting to kill him. Of course, cooler heads came about. They threw him in a cistern pit. And I don't think anyone wants to be thrown in there, but from a cistern pit, feeling all this terror, this fear, this just being scared. I mean, at the time, he's only 17 years old. He doesn't know what's happening. He really doesn't know if he's going to be killed in any second. And then the moment a rope or a hand comes down, maybe he thinks this huge nightmare is finally over. But it's not. He's taken out and he's immediately sold. He's a slave now. Right? And as we know, much later... You know, he would be thrown into prison as well, which he at least stayed for a minimum of two years. But despite all this, despite everything that has happened to him, he always maintained a perspective, a focus on God. And because of that, God blessed him in everything. Because when his brothers finally come to him, when he invites them to come, when he puts all the people in his court to just go, Right? So he can just be alone between himself and his brothers, which is the very first time that he even speaks their language. Because all moments prior, he was using an interpreter. So this is the very first time that he's speaking directly to them. And they kind of figure it out. In fact, their response is, they're terrified. They do not know what this man who's 
second in command of all Egypt that has all his powers. Like, what is he going to do to us? But he says, don't be grieved because you sold, but God sent. This is all part of God's plan. And he makes it a point to reconcile his brothers to himself, to restore those broken relationships. He didn't cause the damage, but he, he pursued that forgiveness first. Forgiveness was already there, right? You know, it makes me think of Romans chapter 5, verse 3. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. All attributes and descriptions that could be easily associated with Joseph and how he's treating these people that have caused him pain. But it's because he's not seeing them for what they have done to him. He's seeing God at work. The opportunity for forgiveness, the opportunity to be reconciled, to be restored, and to be redeemed. If I could ask the, the worship team to come up as I close. But I wanted to focus on one last thing before we pray. I would encourage you to, if you ever have the time to do so in your personal studies, to look at the lives of Joseph and Jesus and to draw the parallels that are there between them because there's many, there are many. But I believe the most important, most profound, impactful parallel that they both share is in this idea of invitation. With Joseph, in verse 4, he says to his brothers, come, come close to me. Within this invitation, the relationships that have been separated, that have been set apart, right, are restored and brought back together. And in that same way, Jesus, through his sacrifice and what he did on the cross and what he did for us to be the perfect total atonement of sin, that we could be redeemed, that we could be restored with the Father, asks us to come. He invites those to come to him and to stay with him. Lord, I thank you so much for this day that you've given us, for this opportunity to be in your presence, to hear your word, Lord. I just ask that for those who have relationships that need mending, that need healing, that you work in those relationships. And for those who are unsaved, Lord, that you would you would convict their hearts and that you would show them the great need to be reconciled to you, that they would have everlasting peace and that have purpose and understanding and joy through your Son. Back to you. In your name I pray. Amen. I have decided